Today's passage is Matthew chapter 26, verses 17 through 30. On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Go into the city to a certain man, he said, and tell him, The teacher says, My time is near. I'm celebrating the Passover at your place with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, he was reclining at the table with the twelve. While they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. Deeply distressed, each one began to say to him, Surely not I, Lord. He replied, The one who dipped his hand with me in the bowl, he will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Judas, his betrayer, replied, Surely not I, Rabbi. You have said it, he told him. As they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat it. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the, vi of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. The word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric, and I am privileged to serve here as the pastor of Trinity. If I haven't had the chance to meet you or connect with you, I would love the chance to do so. For the season of Lent, we are looking at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 26 and 27, which are all about Jesus' journey to the cross. And I chose this title for the sermon series, one, because this is the clear focus of these chapters, and two, because the season of Lent is often called a yearly journey to the cross for disciples of Jesus. The cross of Jesus Christ is something we are called to journey to daily, Jesus says to his disciples, that we are to take up our cross daily. But it's also, I believe, helpful to have one season every year where we can ask ourselves this question. I want to put it like this. How big is the cross in my life? This question was something I learned in my early days as a pastor from the team of pastors I was serving with down in San Diego. And for me, this is something that completely changed my understanding of the Christian life. Here's, here's what I learned. As we journey on in our Christian life, the mark of maturity, the engine of growth, the key to joy, as a Christian, is when the cross gets bigger. What does that mean? It means that as we journey in life as Christians, a few things happen. Our understanding of the holiness of God gets larger and bigger. The life of love that we are called to as followers of Jesus grows. And at the same time as those things grow, so does our experience of how far we fall short of those things. We experience our own sin. 
our own limits, our own experience of our own brokenness grows. And so then we're dealt with a question or we have to deal with this question. What makes up the gap? Do I lower the standards of God's holiness and love? Do I try harder to meet the standards? Do I perform and just try harder? Or do I pretend and uh, make up the gap by pretending that I am something or I am somewhere where I'm not? And I have slides to show the difference. I share these in our 101 class. You may have seen these before. Is it up to us to meet the gap? Slide one. Between our growing awareness of the holiness of God and our growing awareness of how we fall short in our sin. Or, next slide, does the cross of Jesus Christ grow bigger, more precious, and more great to us? My hope for this morning's message as we look at this passage together, and really for this entire season of Lent, is that the cross might grow bigger for all of us. The passage that we just heard read might be familiar to you if you read the Bible or spent some time in church before, as it tells us about the institution of the Lord's Supper that we are going to celebrate right after this message. Jesus' last meal with his disciples before his death. (laughs) There's so much here. There's so much rich reflection. There are like thousands of sermons here, so it's hard for me to (laughs) pick one. And there are many ways that we could approach this. We could look at one theme here. I I chose to look at three different themes here in this text. And as we look at this larger context, as we look at this passage in the larger context of Jesus' journey to the cross, there are three things we learn here from the Lord's Supper about the cross that can make the cross grow bigger in our hearts and lives. So I I have two Two outlines, one for the kids who are with us during family service. And I will tell you, kids, if you could pay attention, be ready with the bulletin. I'm going to have you circle some things as we go. And then I have another outline as well that you'll see on the PowerPoint slides. First, let's talk about the reason for the cross. As we read this passage, really the entirety of this story of Jesus' journey to the cross in chapter 26 and 27. I would say, as I've been reading this, it struck me like never before as I've been studying and reading for this uh, sermon series, is this. The most obvious thing is that Jesus is always in total control. He's in charge. And he's moving everything towards his own death. Jesus is in charge, and Jesus is going to die. Those two things don't seem to go together. But look at, um, well, I think I have this. Do I have this slide? Is there a next slide? Okay, no, I don't. We'll go back. If you have your Bibles and you're open to chapter 26, the whole story begins, this whole section begins in verse 1 of the chapter, which reads, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that the Passover takes place after two days. And the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. In the Gospel of Matthew, this phrase that we find here in this verse, when Jesus had finished 
saying is repeated. This is the fifth time it's repeated. It's a marker. It's a transition between all the major sections. And here in verse 1 of chapter 26, there's one word added, all. The other ones say, when Jesus had finished saying these things, and it moves to the next section. This one says, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, meaning this is the final section. This is what everything has been moving towards. Everything has been leading to this, which is, according to Jesus, that the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Everything's leading to the cross, which at the time was the most shameful and terrible instrument of death in the world. Jesus says he will be handed over. Yet at the same time, he's saying, and... I'll tell you exactly when this is going to happen, at the Passover feast. Now look at our passage in verse 17. Everything is being put into motion. Now his disciples are asking, well, should we make preparations? And Jesus says to them basically, yes, and I've got it all planned out. He's got a spot in the city of Jerusalem all set. Uh, That's where Passover Uh, was meant to be celebrated within the city. He says, I've got it taken care of. He tells his disciples about this man whose house they will be eating the Passover in. He says, tell this certain man, my time is near. And then in verse 20, when the Passover feast begins, he says, before it even happens, one of you will betray me. He knows he's in total and complete control. And he says in verse 24, the son of man will go about just as it is written about him. Now, as I'm sharing this, if we're familiar with this story, we can lose some of the shock of it because no one here in the story understood what in the world was happening. No one wanted to accept what was happening, except as we saw last week, maybe the two people in the previous passage, Judas, who betrayed him, and the woman who poured out perfume over him as she anointed him for his burial. All the rest of the disciples, they either, we'll see, denied him, they ran away, they abandoned him. When what he said would happen, happened. No one understood why. How can Jesus be in total control? He's he's clearly in charge here. He's saying, this is the time it's going to happen. This is the house where it's going to happen. After this meal, this is what's going to happen to you. He's in total control. And yet, he's going to die. Why would he? The answer is, if you're in total control and you go to die, only if he had to. That's the only answer that makes sense. Now, Jesus, who lived the most compelling life of love, Even if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're thinking about Jesus, many people would agree. Jesus' life is the most compelling life of love maybe ever lived. Jesus' teaching is unmatched in how it changed the world. I think that's a fair argument. Jesus' miracles of healings and restorations made a profound impact on those individuals. So we would think, let's get more of his life and his example. Let's get more of his teachings. Let's get get more and more of his miracles. But Jesus here is saying clearly, no, 
That's not the plan. None of this will matter. None of it will bring the plan of God for the world to fulfillment unless I die. Now think about it. No other religion, no other belief system stands or falls on the death of its founder. The teaching is still there. The writings are still there. The example of their life is still there. That's what matters. But here we see that Christianity is utterly and completely different. Jesus himself clearly and undeniably here says and shows us the plan of God for the restoration of humanity, for the salvation of people, stands or falls on his death. For all other belief systems, all other religions, you can, they say, you can stand on your own. Here's how. Follow the teaching. Follow the example. Live the life. But Christianity says you can't. You need someone to stand in your place. Let me share an illustration that hopefully drives home this point. Say our family was hiking. We sometimes hike. And we have gone on a hike at Mount Zion National Park. And one of those hikes for me was one of the scariest hikes I've ever been on because I don't like heights. And we were up really high. Not at the highest, highest angels landing. Another one on the side, but it was high enough for me. And we're going over and there's like right down there, very, very far, is my death or my children's death waiting for me. And so I'm scared and we made it and obviously we, we made it out alive. But say I tell one of my sons as we're on this hike, I love you so much, son. So, so much. And we're walking along the high. And let me show you how. And I just plummet down to my death. What will my son say? <laughs> that was very stupid, Dad. <laughs> I don't feel loved at all. In fact, I feel abandoned. That was worthless. That makes no sense to me. And probably scarred for life. But if we're walking and my son is slipping and barely able to hang on to the side and I jump over and I grab him and fling him back up, but then I fall and I die, then my son will forever say, how my dad loved me. He saved me by taking my place, his life for mine. And that would be his story. Do you see what Jesus is saying here? Do you see what's happening here? Unless it's absolutely necessary, substitutionary sacrifice makes no sense. It has no real effect. Like me jumping off the cliff if no one's in danger. But if it is absolutely necessary, it not only makes sense, it has a life-changing effect on those who personally grasp why it was necessary for them. And it becomes their story. And it becomes the proof that they are loved. The clear teaching of this passage, Jesus is saying, I am your teacher, yes. I am your example, yes. I am your Lord, yes, but none of it matters unless I am your substitute. He saves us by taking our place, his life for ours. 
And the way that Jesus showed his disciples this was by this supper. He said, my body broken, my blood shed, take it, eat it, drink it, his life, body and blood, my life given for you, take it, eat it and drink it. You know, the fascinating thing about the Passover, we'll talk about this in a moment, Jesus' Passover, there was no lamb. None of the Gospels mention a lamb. There's no lamb at the Passover. What kind of Passover is that? The lamb in the Passover meal was the substitute. It was the blood and the life of the lamb that stood in as a substitute for the people so the Lord would pass over them as told in the story of the Exodus. And all this is explained in one little word. Kids, I want you to underline or circle this word. Find the word for. In verse 28. There's a lot of ways we can use the word for. It's the same thing in the, in the original language here. You can say, I'm doing this for you. And you can mean... Say you're instructing your kids, I'm, I'm saying this, I'm doing this for your good. Meaning, this is the reason why I'm doing it, I'm doing it for you. Or, if your kid is struggling to do something and you're like, well, I'm going to help them out, let me do that for you. And you're saying, let me do that in your place. On your account, in the place of, and that's the meaning of the word here. In this one little word, for, we have the heart of of the gospel of the Christian faith. I was reading a book that's been meaningful to me to drive this home, The Cross of Christ by John Stott, and I'd like to read something that John Stott says. I underlined this in the book 22 years ago, and it still has struck me afresh this week. John Stott says, The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. That's what Jesus is showing and telling us at this table. When we forget the reason for the cross, the cross can become small, and we start living and thinking and feeling like we have to add something to the substitutionary work of Jesus so that we would feel worthy, so that we would feel valuable, so that we would feel and know we are loved. And when we think we have to make up for our sins, we do this all the time. I do this all the time. By our contrition, how bad I feel. By beating ourselves up, by self-hatred, by believing any voice that says there's more to do, that's not enough. You're not worthy yet. It's like we are saying to Jesus who said, this is my body. This is my blood poured out for you. We say to Jesus, thank you, Jesus, but that's not enough. This is my self-loathing. This is my 
feeling bad. This is my trying harder. This is my trying to add to that. And don't you see, doesn't that cheapen, doesn't that insult what Jesus says here? What are we given here? Not self-help advice, not a pep talk, not a stern warning. Jesus took bread and he gave it. This is my body. He took the cup and he gave it to them. We are given Jesus, our substitute. That's the reason for the cross. Let's look at the power of the cross. Let me start this point by asking you a question. If God were to say to you, if you think about this question, you can have one of my qualities. You can have one God-like quality, just one. Choose the one that will make the most powerful difference in the world. Which God-like quality would be the difference maker? Which one would you choose? Did anybody think forgiveness, the power of God for forgiveness? This is the power that is found and offered to us in the cross and at the table. Now let's look at this passage again. Remember, this is a Passover meal. And what's happening here is astounding. Jesus is completely reinterpreting and reframing this entire meal, which the Jews had celebrated for hundreds of years the same way. He's saying, I'm reframing it all around me and my death. And what he says and does at, the, at this Last Supper with his disciples, everyone would have been shocked and like in silence wondering what is happening. The Passover meal was a meal instituted by God before he delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And the festival, it had instructions that were laid out in Exodus chapter 12 and a few other places. There was a liturgy that grew up around this. You may have heard the term for it. It's called the Seder, which means the order, the order of what you do when you celebrate the Passover. The unleavened bread that was blessed at the beginning of the meal was called the bread of affliction. The bread of affliction which became and led to their liberation as a people. Jesus took this bread and he said, this is my body. This is the bread of my affliction, which will be your liberation. And everyone's thinking, what, what is he saying? What does that mean? And then later he took the cup. There were four cups used at a Passover meal still to this day. Each one represents one of the fourfold promises of God in Exodus chapter 6. And I have that on the slide. Let's put that up. And this is read during the Passover feast. Therefore tell the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from the forced labor of the Egyptians. And I will rescue you, the second cup from slavery to them. Third cup, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. Fourth cup, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. These are the four cups of the Passover feast. The cup Jesus took in verse 27 is almost certainly the third cup, the cup of redemption, sometimes called the cup of blessing. And Jesus takes this cup and he says something even more stunning than what he said about the bread. He says, Drink from it, 
all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now everyone there is, is probably thinking, what, we're not even allowed to eat blood, Jesus. What are you saying? And he's saying what was said in Exodus chapter 6, with the third promise, by my life, by my blood, I will redeem you with my arms outstretched on a cross and the great act of judgment falling upon me so you can be set free. He's saying his life is the full and complete payment for the debt we owe to God for all our sins and failures, past, present, and future. He says this is the cup that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. His life poured out so that our sins can be forgiven. If you put all this together in the words and the actions that Jesus spoke and enacted during this meal, here's how we could put it together. He's saying just as the people of Israel were delivered from slavery in Egypt in the Exodus, I am bringing a new and greater Exodus by a new and greater deliverance, a greater liberation from a greater power and a more terrible slavery, slavery to sin and death. All this will be accomplished by the new and greater power of forgiveness in my blood. This is the power that is found and offered to us at this table. When we receive this forgiveness, there's a power. We gain the power not only to believe and receive forgiveness, but to grant forgiveness to others. Jesus always ties these two things together, even in the Lord's Prayer. We're taught to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The power of being forgiven is linked to the power of being able to forgive. So when we hold things against people, replaying things in our mind that they have done to us, wanting others to pay for the things that they have done against us, when past wrongs in relationships stand as a wall between us and the other person or as a weapon that we wield against them to pay them back, we have to ask, have I received the power? The power of being forgiven. This week I reread an essay by C.S. Lewis called On Forgiveness about when forgiveness seems to have no power in our lives. And he said this, and this was really helpful and convicting for me, to ask ourselves this then. If we're struggling with unforgiveness, if we're holding on to bitterness, if we can't seem to truly forgive another person, he says, ask yourself, do you ask God to excuse you or to forgive you? Asking to be excused is saying, God, I'm sorry, but you understand, yes? It was a very hard week. I'm not sleeping well. If that other person didn't do that thing, then I wouldn't have done that thing that I did. I've got a lot on my mind. I shouldn't have done that. I'm trying my hardest. 
it isn't your job kind of to forgive? And if God would say, oh, yes, of course, I understand. You're excused. This has no power because this is not forgiveness. Forgiveness does not excuse or minimize the debt. Forgiveness does not lower God's holy standards. It's the exact opposite. Forgiveness names the wrong done, as ugly as it might be, as sin. Acknowledges the debt owed in light of God's holy standards and calling on our lives. And says, forgive me. I can't pay this debt. No matter how great the debt is excused, the gospel is it's forgiven because it was taken by Jesus. And so C.S. Lewis says this, the quote's already up there, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. The power of forgiveness is released in our hearts when we set aside excuses. God, I don't have an excuse for this. And then we are met, as Chris led us in the liturgy already, with a God who waits to be gracious to us, who longs to have compassion on us. And there's power there. Do you know the power? In a world of deep division where wrongs and attacks are answered with more wrongs and attacks and the cycle just see, it seems like it's just continuing and continuing and getting worse. Where one word or post can have you canceled for life. And where so many relationships are broken or stuck, frozen behind walls of unforgiveness. The cross and this table offers us the power of forgiveness. Kids, circle the word forgiveness. Final point. This might be the most incredible piece of all <laughs> at this Last Supper, the thing that Jesus says and does. Jesus here shows us and he tells us, and at this table, every time we come to this table, he tells us what the ultimate goal of the cross is. What's the ultimate goal of it all? What's the ultimate goal, Jesus, of you taking my place? Of you pouring out your blood for my forgiveness? He tells us in verse 29. But I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Remember, the Passover has four cups. Well, what about that fourth cup? When it came to this point in Jesus' last supper with his disciples, he said, I'm not going to drink it. Not yet. But we will together. And it's amazing here. Jesus is certain. Again, Jesus is in total control. He still is here. He has no doubt here. Even though he's about to face something so terrible, so dark, so agonizing, Jesus is saying here, you know what? It's worth it to get to the goal. I'm going to drink wine with you again. With all who believe in me, new in my Father's kingdom. That's the goal. 
to understand what Jesus is saying here. We have to understand the picture he's painting. There's three meals all, all uh, happening at once in this Last Supper. There's the Passover meal, which Jesus is transforming into the Lord's Supper. And then he talks about a coming feast in verse 29. And he says, this is my goal, to share in this coming feast with you. At this time, a feast and a common meal was much more than people who love food and foodies getting together and taking pictures of their food and all that stuff. To, to feast with another person meant acceptance, communion, and fellowship. It meant, I want to be with you. And so here's what Jesus is saying. The cross is too small for us if we think God will forgive us, but he doesn't want to feast with us. Some of us think in the depths of our heart that God simply tolerates us. We can't possibly believe that he delights in us. This fourth cup, which contains the promise, I will take you as mine, my people, and I will be your God. Do you say this to someone you don't want to be in communion with, close to, that you don't want to hang out with and delight in? No. Sometimes you have a party that you throw for whatever reason, and you have to invite people you don't really like. It just happens. That's a part of life. But not if you're God. You don't have to do that. Isn't this exactly what Jesus is saying here? I want you to be at the party in my Father's kingdom. I want to be with you. I delight in you. That is the ultimate goal of all this. Why I died for you, why I was willing to take your place and forgive your sins so we could get there. Yesterday I was in the parking lot... Um, at a shopping center, and I saw this girl with a t-shirt. And I noticed it, it said, I'm God's favorite. <laughs> Have you seen the t-shirt? Maybe one of you has it. I was like, oh, okay, whatever. No, I'm God's favorite. You know, like, what is, what is she saying? That's a little presumptuous, right? And I think the t-shirt is exactly right. Jesus is saying here, to all those who believe in him. Why would I die? Why would I pay your debt? Not just to tolerate you. Not just to allow you to exist in the world. But because I delight in you. And I want to be with you forever. I want to drink wine with you. And feast with you in the new creation. It's going to happen. We are going to get there. And that's why I did all that I've done for you. I delight in you. Dear friends, the Lord Jesus wants to feast with you on the day when all things will be made new. He says it won't be complete without you. That's why I've done what I've done. Before we move to the table, would you pray with me? In light of all we've heard and read this morning, Father, We thank you for your word. 
We thank you for this table. We pray, and I pray for every person here that whether they are just beginning to understand the meaning of the cross, or maybe they've read and heard this passage dozens of times, that you would make the cross grow bigger for us. That if we think we have to add something to what Jesus has done for us as our substitute, that this morning you would make the cross bigger and we'd receive the good news that he's done everything. That if the power of forgiveness is small and weak in our hearts, that you would light it a fire again. That we'd receive forgiveness afresh at this table and be able to give that forgiveness to others. And Lord, for those who feel like maybe you just tolerate them, they don't know if you like them, that they would feel your delight and joy over them as they come to your table. That we'd all be reignited again with joy, knowing the ultimate goal is that we would feast with you now and forever in your kingdom. Powerfully, Lord, powerfully bring the truth to our hearts as we share in this meal that you have given us. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.